November in the year of our salvation, 2008. This is Father Z with another podcast. We welcome as our guests today Pope Benedict XVI, now happily reigning as Sovereign Pontiff, Bishop of Rome. He will introduce us to our main guest today, St. Cyril of Jerusalem. Died in 387, some say 386. Cyril was Bishop of Jerusalem. He was a doctor of the church. He was a very strong opponent of Arians and a great teacher. And for our introduction to St. Cyril, Benedict himself will guide us through what he taught us in a Wednesday audience, part of his series on the fathers of the church. So to get at Cyril more fruitfully, let's listen to Benedict from his Wednesday audience of 27 June, 2007. Our attention now is focused on St. Cyril of Jerusalem. His life is woven of two dimensions. On the one hand, pastoral care, and on the other hand, his involvement, in spite of himself, in the heated controversies that were then tormenting the Church of the East. Cyril was born at or near Jerusalem in A.D. 315. He received an excellent literary education which formed the basis of his ecclesiastical culture, centered on study of the Bible. He was ordained a priest by Bishop Maximus. When this bishop died or was deposed in 348, Cyril was ordained a bishop by Acacius, the influential metropolitan of Caesarea in Palestine, a Philo-Arian who must have been under the impression that in Cyril he had an ally. So, as a result, Cyril was suspected of having obtained his episcopal appointment by making concessions to Arianism. Actually, Cyril very soon came into conflict with Acacius, not only in the field of doctrine, but also in that of jurisdiction, because he claimed his own see to be autonomous from the metropolitan see of Caesarea. Cyril was exiled three times within the course of approximately twenty years. The first time was in 357, after being deposed by a synod of Jerusalem, followed by a second exile in 360, instigated by Acacius, and finally in 367 by a third exile, his longest, which lasted eleven years, by the Philo-Arian Emperor Valens. It was only in 378, after the emperor's death, that Cyril could definitively resume possession of his see and restore unity and peace to his faithful. Some sources of that time cast doubt on his orthodoxy, whereas other equally ancient sources come out strongly in his favor. 
The most authoritative of them is the synodal letter of 382 that followed the Second Ecumenical Council of Constantinople in 381, in which Cyril had played an important part. In this letter addressed to the Roman pontiff, the Eastern bishops officially recognized Cyril's flawless orthodoxy, the legitimacy of his episcopal ordination, and the merits of his pastoral service, which ended with his death in 387. Of Cyril's writings, twenty-four famous catechesis have been preserved, which he delivered as bishop in about 350. Introduced by a protocatechesis of welcome, the first eighteen of these are addressed to catechumens, or candidates for illumination, photizomenoi, candidates for baptism. They were delivered in the Basilica of the Holy Sepulchre. The first ones, numbers one to five, respectively treat the prerequisites for baptism, conversion from pagan morals, the sacrament of baptism, the ten dogmatic truths contained in the creed or symbol of the faith. The next catechesis, numbers 6 to 18, form an ongoing catechesis on the Jerusalem creed in anti-Aryan tones. Of the last five so-called mystagogical catechesis, the first two develop a commentary on the rites of baptism, and the last three focus on the chrism, the body and blood of Christ, and the Eucharistic liturgy. They include an explanation of the Our Father, Oratio Dominica. This forms the basis of a process of initiation to prayer, which develops on a par with the initiation to the three sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. The basis of his instruction on the Christian faith also served to play a polemic role against pagans, Judeo-Christians, and Manichaeans. The argument was based on the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises in a language rich in imagery. Catechesis marked an important moment in the broader context of the whole life, particularly liturgical, of the Christian community, in whose maternal womb the gestation of the future faithful took place, accompanied by prayer and the witness of the brethren. Taken as a whole, Cyril's homilies form a systematic catechesis on the Christian's rebirth through baptism. He tells the catechumen, you have been caught in the nets of the church. Be taken alive, therefore. Do not escape, for it is Jesus who is fishing for you, not in order to kill you, but to resurrect you after death. Indeed, you must die and rise again. Die to your sins, and live to righteousness from this very day. From the doctrinal viewpoint, Cyril commented on the Jerusalem Creed with recourse to the typology of the scriptures in a symphonic relationship between the two testaments, arriving at Christ, the center of the universe. The typology was to be described decisively by Augustine of Hippo, quote, In the Old Testament there is a veiling of the new, and in the New Testament there is a revealing of the old. 
As for the moral catechesis, it is anchored in deep unity to the doctrinal catechesis. The dogma progressively descends in souls, who are thus urged to transform their pagan behavior on the basis of new life in Christ, a gift of baptism. The mystagogical catechesis, lastly, marked the summit of the instruction that Cyril imparted, no longer to catechumens, but to the newly baptized, or neophytes, during Easter week. He led them to discover the mysteries still hidden in the baptismal rites of the Easter vigil. Enlightened by the light of a deeper faith by virtue of baptism, the neophytes were at last able to understand these mysteries better, having celebrated their rites. Especially with neophytes of Greek origin, Cyril made use of the faculty of sight, which they found congenial. It was the passage from the rite to the mystery that made the most of the psychological effect of amazement, as well as the experience of Easter night. Here is a text that explains the mystery of baptism. Quote, you descended three times into the water and ascended again, suggesting by a symbol the three days' burial of Christ, imitating our Savior who spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See Matthew 12:40. Celebrating the first immersion in water, you recall the first day passed by Christ in the sepulchre. With the first immersion, you confessed the first night passed in the sepulchre. For as he who is in the night no longer sees, but he who is in the day remains in the light, so in the descent, as in the night, you saw nothing. But in ascending again, you were as in the day. And at the selfsame moment, you were both dying and being born. And that water of salvation was at once your grave and your mother. For you, the time to die goes hand in hand with the time to be born. One and the same time effected both of these events. The mystery to be understood is God's plan, which is brought about through Christ's saving actions in the church. In turn, the mystagogical dimension is accompanied by the dimension of symbols, which express the spiritual experience they explode. Thus, Cyril's catechesis, on the basis of the three elements described, doctrinal, moral, and lastly, mystagogical, proves to be a global catechesis in the spirit. The mystagogical dimension brings about the synthesis of the two former dimensions, orienting them to the sacramental celebration in which the salvation of the whole human person takes place. In short, this is an integral catechesis which, involving body, soul, and spirit, remains emblematic for the catechetical formation of Christians today. That was Pope Benedict XVI talking about Cyril of Jerusalem in his series on the Fathers of the Church. That was from his general audience of June 27, 2007. And you 
heard in there how uh, Cyril uh, instructed the catechumens. He instructed them in, uh, in a very important method by which catechumens and then the newly baptized or neophytes were prepared for the sacraments uh, all through the ancient church. What Cyril is doing in Jerusalem, of course, is part of the Eastern practice, but that same practice was also in the West. For example, Latin bishops like Ambrose in Milan, he was teaching catechumens and the newly baptized in a similar method. And uh, Augustine of Hippo was doing the same thing in North Africa. Now, our Cyril died in the 380s. Ambrose died in the 390s, in 397. And Augustine would become a priest in 391, and then co-Judah bishop in 396. So by reading uh, Cyril and Ambrose and Augustine in their sermons and their lessons to catechumens, we get a picture of what that that experience was like of being brought into the church. And we can also learn from the fathers, therefore, how to take the symbols that we find, especially in the liturgy, and try to understand more of what is really happening through the signs, effective signs, not just signs by themselves, but signs that have an effect, that have a transforming power. So um, there are a few things to listen to in this in this uh, piece that we're going to hear. First, notice that Cyril is talking about a mixed group of people, those who can read and those who can't. And you know, that issue of literacy uh, reminds me of something that the, the church was accused of for centuries, namely that the church forbade people to read scriptures, which is, of course, absolutely nonsense. The church... Uh, was accused by her enemies of keeping scriptures in Latin in order to prevent people from reading them. But that is uh, ridiculous because the fact is there were, for many centuries, only two types of people, those who could read and those who couldn't. And those who could read could read Latin. And those who couldn't read Latin uh, couldn't read anything at all. And so uh, that accusation leveled against the church is really, you know, rather silly. Of course, Cyril here isn't talking about Latin. He's talking about Greek and Hebrew. But the point is that the group he was instructing seems to have been mixed across classes uh, because they're mixed across different levels of education. So his catechesis is aimed at everybody. Another point is that the bishop uh, really imposes memorization on them. They had to commit this to their hearts and their minds. Uh, next, also, listen for how Cyril says that um, that the creed, they have to understand that the creed is biblically based. They have to support what the creed conveys to them uh, with scripture, because, of course, what the creed is conveying is divinely revealed, and that the whole of doctrine is encapsulated in the creed, just as a seed contains everything that a tree would contain later on. This is similar, very similar to the modern argument of John Henry Newman, isn't it, about the idea of development of doctrine. And uh, Cyril also confirms the interconnection of the Old and the New Testament. We heard Pope Benedict talk about that in his introduction. Uh, furthermore, uh, Cyril talks about enemies. There are people out there, who uh, heretics, for example, who are, you should watch out for.
And also, um, this faith that Cyril wants everybody to memorize is like a treasure in a bank. And God is going to call people to account for it. So those are some things to keep your ears tuned to. Now let's hear some of Cyril's teaching from Lecture 5, Lesson 5, of what we call in Latin, De Fide et Symbolo. Symbolum is a creed that is spoken. And I'm sorry, if I, I don't have the Greek to read, do you hear? Either in whole or in part, so we are going to have to content ourselves with the English translation taken from the Liturgy of the Hours. In learning and professing the faith, you must accept and retain only the Church's present tradition, confirmed as it is by the Scriptures. Although not everyone is able to read the Scriptures, some because they have never learned to read, others because their daily activities keep them from such study, still so that their souls will not be lost through ignorance, we have gathered together the whole of the faith in a few concise articles. Now, I order you to retain this creed for your nourishment throughout life, and never to accept any alternative, not even if I myself were to change and say something contrary to what I am now teaching, not even if some angel of contradiction changed into an angel of light, tried to lead you astray. For, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which you have now received, let him be accursed in your sight. So, for the present, be content to listen to the simple words of the creed, and to memorize them. At some suitable time, you can find the proof of each article in the scriptures. This summary of the faith was not composed at man's whim. The most important sections were chosen from the whole scripture to constitute and complete a comprehensive statement of the faith. Just as the mustard seed contains in a small grain many branches, so this brief statement of the faith keeps in its heart, as it were, all the religious truth to be found in the Old and New Testament alike. That is why, my brothers, you must consider and preserve the traditions you are now receiving. Inscribe them across your heart. Observe them scrupulously, so that no enemy may rob any of you in an idle and heedless moment. Let no heretic deprive you of what has been given to you. Faith is rather like depositing in a bank the money entrusted to you, and God will surely demand an account of what you have deposited. In the words of the Apostle, I charge you before the God who gives life to all things, and before Christ who bore witness under Pontius Pilate in a splendid declaration, to keep unblemished this faith you have received, until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have now been given life's great treasure. When he comes, the Lord will ask for what he has entrusted to you. 
At the appointed time he will reveal himself, for he is the blessed and sole ruler, King of kings, Lord of lords. He alone is immortal, dwelling in unapproachable light. No man has seen or ever can see him. To him be glory, honor, and power for ever and ever. Amen. That was from Cyril's fifth lesson from what we call in Latin De Fide et Symbolo, his catechetical instruction. And did you notice in there that powerful testimony that Cyril gives, that this is not his own, he's not making this up, he's passing on what he has received. He's giving tradition, traditio. It's being passed on now to them, and they must treasure it as he, as he has treasured it, and those who have taught him must treasure it. And it's, and it's found in Scripture, and it's found in the authority of the whole church. And just because it's concise, that doesn't mean it doesn't contain everything and how everything is connected. If you destroy one thing, you're going to destroy the other. That's part of you know, the implication of how religious truth is found in the Old and the New Testament alike. But this is a brief statement of, of that whole thing. It's a concise, uh, a concise way of making it your own. You have to memorize it. As, as Cyril puts it, you have to inscribe these concise statements across your heart. Think about using your mind to write upon your own heart, or perhaps even better, to allow the Holy Spirit to inscribe them 
maybe allowing the Holy Spirit to guide your own hand as you write them into your own heart. And this is life's great treasure. See, it's not just any old thing. It's life's great treasure. And because he puts such a, a an importance, places such an importance on this, using the image of treasure, let's think about that that image of the faith as being like a treasure we put in a bank. If we are given this treasure, given a gift, we can squander it. Uh, and we can squander it not just by being negligent about it and letting uh, thieves steal it, uh, that is, you know, heretics or other people confuse us. We can squander it or neglect it also by not allowing it to grow or not actually taking steps to make it grow. Remember the parable of the Lord about the man who entrusts talents of money to servants before he goes off on a journey. When he comes back, he's very pleased with the servants who invest and earn and make the treasure grow, but he's very displeased with the one who just hid it away and kept it safe and doesn't make it grow. We should take this to heart when we think about the faith that has been handed on to us. It's a great gift. It is the gift of our lives, really, the great gift we will get in life. We have to remember not just what we've learned in basic catechism, we have to deepen what we know. Cyril even talks about this. You know, remember he says, on your own, you can go out and confirm, you know, what all these concise statements are by using scripture. You can go and deepen these things on your own. We also have to increase our knowledge and our understanding of the basic things that we hold. You know, now you think of this old method of catechesis of children that involved memorization of questions and answers. You know, the old Baltimore Catechism was fabulous for that in the United States. There was also the, actually, the, you know, the small catechism of Martin Luther, the Pro, you know, Protestants used the same thing. Well, this memorization is very, very important because once you memorize something, and as it were, you've inscribed it on your heart, then no one can ever take it away from you. Once it's memorized, you have it, and you might perhaps, through negligence, allow someone to distort it. But once you've memorized it, it's yours forever. And we have a a responsibility not just to maintain what we learned, but to deepen our understanding. Now, in for example, in that old method of the Baltimore Catechism, the children had to repeat every year the same material, but with a, a little bit more added in increasingly complex answers each year. Uh, the material deepened, but it didn't change. It expanded, but it wasn't morphed into a different doctrine or a different message. This is because the children, year by year, were able to grasp more, and so the presentation of the material changed. The children had the basics from the beginning, but it developed then from little seeds into trees because they themselves were growing up. And we all have to keep learning. 
Our faith doesn't change, but our ability to understand changes. Not only that, our life experience changes us. We receive things differently because of who we are over the course of our life. Now, this is, for example, one of the reasons why Holy Church repeats in the liturgical year all the mysteries of the Lord and the whole history of salvation. Not because the mysteries are changing, but because we change. Each year, we are capable of gleaning more from what we are being given. So, in a year's time, can you say that you have deepened your faith? It's a question. I know a lot of people who you know, in their, as they get closer to the end of their life, they really haven't maybe done anything to deepen what they perhaps learned and have now kind of forgotten or neglected from their basic catechism so many, many years ago. And all this time, it could have been, you know, brought back up and treasured and increased and expanded. Because remember, we're going to be called account for the gift that we have been given. We have to deepen our faith because each year we are capable of more. Now, when I use that word faith, too, keep in mind that we're talking about the faith in which we believe, and that's things that you can memorize and study and reflect on like that. But then there's also the faith by which we believe which is a gift of God. That's a grace. We can talk about, therefore, the fides quae creditur, the faith which is believed, and then the fides qua creditur, the the faith by which uh, something is believed. Uh, Either way, both of these different ways of considering the faith lead us back to the same, the very same thing, and that's not just a formula, but a person, the eternal word, Jesus Christ, the source of the faith and the one in whom we believe. We can have a relationship with it like a person, not just like a formula or something to memorize. Either way, he is the one who is going to hold us to account for the great treasure that he has given us. this podcast on this gray, gray, rainy autumnal day here at the Sabine Farm. All the leaves are down except for a few stragglers still clinging to hope on the branches and 
and uh, some of the oaks, of course, they retain their leaves a little longer, but it's been raining. Sometimes the wind blowing the rain this way and sometimes that way, shifting around. But uniformly quiet, uh, still but for the rain and a little breeze blowing some wet leaves around. We're getting ready for winter here. And uh, we've been going through a lot of things. I had a my chimney swept. And the, the matter of fact, the chimney sweep showed up with a real top hat on. Just like the, We like the traditional ways, don't we? Chimney sweeps always have to wear top hats. Had the furnace checked, that other kind of chimney thing. It's all hearth. Hearth before the winter. And um, uh, I've been changing domain names around, too. That's a little bit of the maintenance do, being done before winter. The birthday of the blog's domain is coming in two days, the 8th of November. That's when I started WDPRS.com. Whiskey, Delta, Tango, Papa, Romeo, Sierra. But, you know, it's so complicated, I'm going to get some simpler domain names, too. But in the meantime, you can tell your friends to come to the blog just by Googling Father Z. You'll find it right away. Father Z for you over in, on the other side of the pond. So come and visit, uh, take part in the discussions, and uh, use the donation button on the left sidebar of the blog, too. And uh, don't forget that I remember you in my prayers as befits benefactors. So say a prayer for me, and I will do so for you. Thank you.